This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, my name's Rochelle Hunt and I'm in Melbourne. And I'm Bronwyn O'Shea, I'm in Barnawatha in North East Victoria. So Bron, what would you do if your partner controlled all of the household money, all of the finances, and you weren't allowed to know anything about where or how money was being spent? You had no access to a bank card, to passwords, or to any bank details at all. Or what if someone made you put your name on a loan that wasn't even yours, or racked up huge bills on your joint credit card? They're all examples, Rochelle, of financial abuse. So a Deloitte report came out last month and it found a staggering number of one in 30 women and one in 50 men are victims of financial control or financial abuse. But this is something that we wouldn't know because for most of us, we don't talk about money. It's a taboo topic. And the problem is this helps this issue stay hidden. Absolutely. We don't talk about it openly. Uh, I wonder, would you recognise financial abuse if it was happening to you or to someone you know? And then what do you do about it? Immediately, I know I do and probably many of us think about Britney Spears and her Mm. guardianship battle that made global headlines, but it's actually more everyday and, and more common than that. Yeah, well, closer to home, so many people I've talked to were horrified at last week's Four Corners episode, which, of course, looked at this very issue of financial abuse, but within the public trustee system. So have you or someone close to you had experience with financial control or financial abuse? What are the red flags and how do we stop it? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Bron, I don't know about you, but I don't feel comfortable talking about money. I very rarely talk about it with friends as a society. We don't tell each other what we earn. It's like sort of like politics. You know, you just don't talk about money. And even at times, you know, when I've been really, really broke, I wouldn't tell anyone. And you would just say yes, and you'd beg, borrow and steal to try and cover it up. We just don't like talking about money. And I think that's a part of the reason why these figures are so high when it comes to financial control and financial abuse is that we just don't talk about it. Spot on. I feel really awkward having conversations about finances and money and and, and spending. And I did read not so long ago, Rochelle, a line that essentially said whenever something is taboo, that then you run the risk of of. Um, being able to hide things away and that's where problems can fester and I think that really says it all when we're talking about this issue of financial abuse. And what is financial abuse? What is financial control? Is there a big difference between it? There might be a bit of an old-fashioned kind of concept of being given an allowance and only being allowed to use that allowance right through to the other end of the scale which we'll look at today and in particular for migrant women who maybe, you know, are really being threatened or then names are being used on big accounts uh, as guarantors on on big loans, issues that where they don't even have access to knowing what bank that the family might bank with to be able to even start to ask so, some of those questions. So that's what we're looking at today. This is an issue close to Rebecca Glenn's heart. She founded the Centre for Women's Economic Safety just a couple of years ago after a career in financial services and financial literacy. And that centre really focuses on domestic economic abuse. Rebecca, welcome to the Conversation Hour. Thanks for having me. What is it? What is financial control or financial abuse? So in the context of family violence, it's basically where one partner restricts, exploits or sabotages the other person's economic resources. And when I say economic resources, it sounds, you know, very technical, but we're just talking about uh, money, mobile phone, like transport, employment or housing. But importantly, when we talk about economic abuse, it's not um, a decision between a couple about how you manage your finances. It's uh, behaviour that threatens one person's financial security and constrains their ability to live life freely. So you gave some great examples at the opening there, but, you know, economic abuse could look like 
you know, one person sabotaging their partner's employment by constantly harassing them at work. Uh, you talked about that idea of an allowance. Well, if someone's giving you only a very small allowance and dictating how it can be spent, that could qualify as economic abuse. And, and debts in another person's name, which unfortunately we're seeing more and more of. Uh, there are so many different ways yeah. that people find to exert control and inflict financial damage. It is highly individual. Is it always obvious? Is this something that is a slow creep? Uh, almost always a slow creep. In fact, I, I was really just reflecting on would you, you said, would you even recognise it yeah. if it was happening? And I, and I have to tell you the story of how I became involved in um, focusing on this issue. I was actually working in financial literacy and had never heard of it. Okay, so we talk about taboos and not being comfortable talking about money. I talked about money all the time. Um, and I, I became aware of some research, fantastic organisation down in Victoria, WIRE, Women's Information Referral Exchange. And they were looking at this issue of economic abuse and I was learning about it for the first time. And as they were um, sharing their insights with me, I realised that uh, the quote-unquote money troubles that a friend of mine was having was actually economic abuse. And so I was someone working in the field every day talking about, you know, how to improve our financial well-being, learning about products, da, 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 da. and I knew that, you know, this friend and, and her partner were having trouble. They weren't having trouble. He was abusing uh, through economic means that, that trust and that relationship. So, yeah, it can be very subtle and, uh, you know, there, there are... There are many layers, I guess, to, to, to what can be happening and how it can be hiding in the shadows. It's text here saying, if it actually only happens to one in 30, I'd be really shocked. The links between family violence and financial abuse is far more wide than that. My experience of family violence was hugely linked with financial abuse. Rebecca, stay with us. Cheryl's called through. Cheryl, welcome. Hello, how are you going? Good. What did you want to say? Um, I just wanted to say, um, and I guess my experience was being a stay-at-home mum for a long time and with my husband, we just fell into those roles of I was at home with the kids for 12 years um, and he worked um, and having his own business, uh, eventually I sort of lost, you know, didn't have my own bank account, um, everything was joint, didn't even have my own phone, my own email, everything was written through the business and so then when we separated, I was probably a bit naive um that things would sort of be go smoothly and that's where the financial abuse um started so um not allowing me access to money leaving credit cards maxed out um and even when we sold our house um he put off allowing me um access to the money so when i had to move out um the kids and i had nowhere to live um and when i asked him you know, I said, I, I just need somewhere to live. <laughs> like, I need access to that money. And he said, oh, well, you're an adult, work it out. Um, and it was just kind of being, that feeling of being left high and dry and, you know, and, and just, yeah, having to sort of realise, wow, how did I get myself in this position? I have nothing, not one dollar yeah. to my wow. name. I have not even, it was, I didn't even have my own car. Like, everything was written through his business. And that was where it started, hand the car back. And I said, well, I need to drive the kids around, you know, to school and things. Oh, well, work it out. You're an adult. What um, an erosion of trust, Cheryl. That's, yeah. And I, I think the biggest thing also is that when you talk about it being a bit of a, a taboo subject, um, I had no support from really our friends or, fa or family because no one supported me leaving my relationship. So, therefore... Everyone wanted to turn a blind eye and not, um, and it's oh, just, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. a bit of, and, it's, and especially because, yeah, they think they sort of know a person, but no one knows what goes on behind closed doors. Um, and I'm really lucky that I had, you know, really two or three people that um, love me and support me unconditionally, and I was able to live with them and move in with them and eventually you know, get a job and find my feet and um, and do everything. But I just didn't see any of that coming. Oh, Cheryl, I've had a whole 
physical reaction to your story to to know that that's how easily it can happen to someone. You had that little handful of friends there and thank God that you did and it's so wonderful to hear that you're back on your feet. But did you know, was there anywhere, and we're going to speak to some community groups and to some individuals today that do work in this sector, but did you feel like you sort of knew where to go, like whether or not there was support, uh, helplines? Oh, I I, I feel, I know now, but at the time... um, it's really just the way that um, sometimes things go in life. And I went to university, I got a degree, I had a job, um, and then I had started having kids. And so I stayed home to raise the kids, and that was a joint decision. Um, and from there, you sort of, you know, we had a good, you know, a beautiful home. Um, and, you know, I thought I was sort of, I guess, in a, you know, in a good position. I felt that I was educated, um, but I had no idea. And suddenly I found myself with only a week to move out and I had no idea where to go. Um, I rang my local council to say, what am I supposed to do? (laughs) I have nowhere to live. I have no money. I have nothing. Um, I'll be out on the street, you know, in a week. And it's just, I've learned a lot through this process. Um, At the time I didn't know where to turn or what to do, um, you know. Yeah, I've, the fact that you're having to call your, your local council as well. I mean, they oh, don't have answers to the best of things. Cheryl, you've really highlighted an important issue, and I know Bron, so thank you so much for sharing your story. And Bron, we're actually going to try and highlight some of these groups so that you don't have to call your council. I mean, your council might be great, right, and point you in the right direction, but the, the chances are they're not going to know. You know, you need a really specific network. Yeah, and Cheryl, I'm so glad you rang because I think it just shows that this can happen to anyone, even people who feel as though they are well-educated, have great support networks. Um, also still with us is Rebecca Glenn, who founded the Centre for Women's Economic Safety. Rebecca, really, for this very reason, didn't you? What? Do, what how do you feel when you hear... Uh, a story like like the one we've just heard? Well, I feel, you know, obviously it's depressingly common and I feel angry um, that this, uh, I guess really at the heart of it, there's this male entitlement. So, um, you know, couples get together and they, you know, they, they feel like they're making joint decisions, but those joint decisions um, are increasingly making a woman dependent on the man. And then they're, uh, I guess... Some of the concerns that I have that I I think we need to be looking at as a society are how we design our systems that mean that what the decisions that Cheryl and her former partner took were logical. So there were tax incentives to run things through the business in that way. There were disincentives for Cheryl to go back to work um, or utilise childcare. So, So the way systems are designed increase women's dependence on men and make it much easier for that post-separation abuse which she experienced to occur. And so I think we've, um, no matter how much awareness raising we do, that's not going to solve the system design which is incentivising these behaviours and that's what we need to look at. Texts here, financial abuse is easier to hide than bruises, but it's just as violence, breaking free from that is so hard. And a lot of people saying, please talk about financial abuse with older people. It's often their adult children. How sad is that? And that's, I guess, a more common term. We hear now the term elder abuse and and financial abuse for, for older Victorians. When we look at some of the stats that are coming in of one in 30 women, one in 50 men, is there an age demographic where it is more prevalent? Uh, the, the, I think the most common sort of age demographic where you see a higher um, uh, percentage of women experiencing economic abuse is 35 to 45. But certainly the, the, the prevalence studies that I've seen are much, much higher than one in 30. That's, you know, one in, um, sorry, 16% of women have experienced economic abuse. Um, and that doesn't take into account things like coerced debt. And we know amongst women experiencing family violence that we're talking about between 78 and 99% uh, of people experiencing family violence or experiencing economic abuse as part of that broader pattern of, of abusive behaviour. So uh, it is very prevalent uh, and, and often, as you said, hidden. 
You were awarded a Churchill Fellowship to investigate the way that um, other countries were responding to this problem. Did you learn anything from those examples that we could be implementing here in Australia that would make a real difference? Well, look, there were a number of things. I think what really stood out for me was probably an initiative in, in the UK, um, which was kind of twofold. It was um, basically, where do you turn if you're experiencing economic abuse and you've got questions? Uh, like Cheryl had, like, where do you, where do you go? Uh, and so in the UK, they had a financial support line, which was for women experiencing domestic abuse to call with their financial questions. Um, and we don't have anything quite like that here. Um, they also had uh, sort of in tandem with that, they had what they called um, these drop-in, they call them surgeries, but say a drop-in clinic. And so again, you know, women out in the community could just drop into one of these clinics and ask their money questions. And it is often at that point, as Cheryl found, like, oh gosh, I'm suddenly running out of options and I don't know what to do. And so I would really like to see, I, Centre for Women's Economic Safety is trialling those clinics currently in New South Wales, but I would love for there to be a national helpline for women to be able to call and say, help, what do I do next? Thank you so much for sharing your insights, having worked in this field for a long time and now as the founder of the Centre for Women's Economic Safety, Rebecca Glenn, thank you for joining the Conversation Hour. This text says financial abuse, do not forget the elderly. It is even an even bigger problem. And it's certainly a problem that our next guest, Rochelle, understands very well. Maria Berry works as a consumer advisor for Older Persons Advocacy Network. And in just a moment, we're going to hear about the work that she does in this very space. Let's have a chat to Susan. She's on the Mornington Peninsula. Hi, Susan. Oh, hello. Um, look, I just wanted to bring up a subject that's not discussed um, in the public realm very often, and that is um, the ability for, uh, well, it could be a male or a female, but a business owner, um, which are usually men, tradies, who can manipulate their income by um, lowering and reporting how much they earn and then claiming child support from the woman in their life, which is what happened to me. I um, am a part-time nurse and my ex was a, um, a tradie with his own business and he used to report to the child support industry, the agency and his tax return that he only earned about $20,000, which then I had to pay him child support for two children based on his income. It took me years of fighting and telling the child support agency that he actually earned more. He lived in a very wealthy suburb. He had car, multiple cars and jet skis and he minimised his income because he owned the business. And finally, I had to go through VTAC to get his income raised, but it still doesn't even touch the surface of what he earns. No. And um, the fact, it just shows, Susan, doesn't it, how many different ways financial control can manifest and the different ways it can, I guess, um, be used against somebody. And the fact that you had to go to all of those lengths, I mean, sometimes it takes every bit of courage to recognise that it's happening to you and pick up a phone, even yeah. just to make a phone call, let alone go through the whole system of VCAT. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm still paying until my eldest child turns 18. Um, and meanwhile, he's building multi-million dollar houses and going to Hawaii. And I'm still paying child support um, to him. Suzanne, what, would, what would help? Yeah, what, what um, would help? What would have made this well, easier for you? It would have been much easier had the child support agency um, taken a bigger look at what his lifestyle was um, and, you know, how how could a business owner earn only twenty thousand dollars a year? I know. And these and are the red flags that we're talking about as well. And from all of the different stories we're hearing so far, how different an individual it is, Susan, I, we really wish you the best. Thank you. We talked just a moment ago about older people, Rochelle, and uh, this is a form of elder abuse. Maria Berry is a consumer advisor for the Older Persons Advocacy Network. Morning, Maria. Good morning, Bronwyn and Rochelle. You came to this role after a very personal experience yourself with financial abuse. What happened? I certainly did. Well, growing up in regional Victoria on a farm, I my 
my father became subjected to um, it was um, well elder abuse but through a family member and it was something to like listening to conversations this morning that crept up and then it was suddenly a crisis point and despite my background and knowledge working in aged care services and for my entire life and volunteering with organisations and groups locally here in regional Victoria it didn't equip me or prepare us for what was about to happen and it became so serious too that that the loss of control um, the financial stripping um, on a on a farm livestock being sold and it became so serious that we went back to our family solicitor and we had to also appoint um, go through VCAT and have guardianship appointed as well. Now, it's quite a long story and without making it too long, it got to the point, it was so serious that guardianship were actually about four and a half hours away. The abuse still continued. My father was diagnosed with dementia and then eventually when I fought and fought and we did manage to get him into into residential aged care and it was we had our own family things happening we lost a house in a fire i'd had a serious back injury and then it became a hurdle of your father's going to be moved out of this particular facility and i became so desperate i actually threatened to chain myself to a tree i contacted all the parties involved and said what can we do? This man, this man has over one million dollars worth of assets. He's got no money in his bank account. He's been stripped and continually, you know, um, deceived by his family. And what can we do? And I guess listening to some of the comments that are coming through on the yeah. show this morning, it just brings it to light. Yeah, you there's know, so many. There are so many. You know, people thanking Cheryl, for example, saying this exact same thing happened to me. People talking about, you know, Suzanne, our other caller saying, yep, this happened to me as well. Given, Maria, you're based in, in regional Victoria, and when we talk about being able to reach out and get help or knowing where to go, do you think that there's different challenges again, like another layer that's missing for regional and rural Victorians? Oh, definitely, definitely. I think because, look, there's so many organisations and some fantastic work being done, but if you go onto Google... <laughs> It, there's a flood of information and where do you go to? Where do you actually reach out to? And I think people on a local level, they're looking for someone that they know and trust. They're looking for local connections. What's actually available in their local area and who, who can they reach out to? And it is, it's a very taboo subject. Yeah, it is. About yep. yes. And I wonder because if that's worse. Oh, sorry, Bron. No, I'm just thinking if you're in a small town... Right, yeah. like where you are now in Barnawatha, where I grew up, you know, in Trafalgar, everybody knows kind of everybody else's business and those that are working in support groups, you might know from school or from there, your dry cleaner or whatever it may be. Like, is it harder to ask for help in smaller towns? Yeah. And Maria, do you find that? Because I know you field a lot of calls from people who've been referred by a friend of a friend of a friend mm. who's got hold of your name and number and knows what you do and, and please can you help this friend of mine. Um, you know, I know you get a lot of that in your own personal time. So what's the solution there? How do we make it easier for people to reach out to people they trust? Absolutely. And that's that's a really good point, um, Bronwyn, because I have been receiving an increasing number of calls and I think it's because um, also because of the support of ABC that you've always provided and bringing up these conversations that people track you down or see you in the paper and they're reaching out but it, 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 I think it's having somewhere where they can go where they can trust because it's like a, it's like a big elephant in the room having that conversation and it's also to sometimes with older people and i know even myself your confidence when you losing like you, when things change in your life and unexpected happens you lose that confidence you lose that empowerment and 
you're looking to reach out to somebody that you think, okay, I've seen that person or know that person and I know that they understand or get it, they've perhaps been through that, um, and they find that sometimes easy. But there is lots of calls coming through from people that are trying to help their friends or help somebody in the community because it's re reached a crisis point. And also family members that perhaps are going through this they, they, they are really confronted. They don't want to seek legal action and go through that kind of avenue. That you know, they want peace. They want harmony in their families, and they put their heads down in shame too. It's almost like an, a, an embarrassment to what's actually happened to them, oh, and which is heartbreaking, isn't it? It's, you don't want that to be a barrier to getting the support you need. No. Maria, thank you so much for being part of our conversation this morning. Maria Berry there, a consumer advisor for the Older Persons Advocacy Network, or OPAN, as they are for short. And Maria there with a very personal story, of course, Rochelle, yeah. that, that triggered her work in this space, and important work it is too. And we mentioned before that maybe the councils wouldn't know what to do. And I actually did overlook something there because they do have, the, of course, the maternal and child healthcare services there. Many people have said they can and often do have either domestic violence sectors or have somewhere and somehow that they can refer you. So, you know what, maybe it's, a, if you don't know who else to call, maybe you can call your local council. So totally. I, I totally take that back. Let's have a chat Merrill. to Meryl. Yes, in Box Hill South. Hello. Hello. Yes, I used to work for Centrelink um, and um, I've retired now, so <laughs> um, but I, whatever I'm going to say wouldn't include any names. Um, I worked in the family section when when it was dealt with in the offices, and I always told clients that the money was there for them to look after the children, this is for, to the women, so that they should have the money going into an account that's either on their own or at least they've got and the name is you know whether it's joint accounts or theirs, but preferably in their own name. And sometimes they'd say, oh, my husband wants to claim it at the end of the year. And we say, well, how are you doing for money? And, you know, if I found out that they weren't doing very well for money, I'd say, well, you've got a right now to have it put into your name and, you know, whatever, so that you can... And if you even if you claimed halfway through the year, you would get it back paid from the beginning of the financial year. So um, I always tried to make sure that they understood. Mm. I mean... I think the um, there's more of a problem sometimes with people from where their English wasn't good. Um, yes. Because the husband would tend to um, try and take over things and take over conversations and say, oh, no, I'll do it, I'll do it, she won't understand. So, anyway, that's... <laughs> Mer Meryl, that's great. And, and I'm wondering, and I know you're retired now, but when you were working um, for Centrelink, was there much education and training for people like you so you could be on the lookout for warning yeah. signs or you could have some resources to pass on? Um, yes, we did. And we were always told in the beginning, you know, that this is um, this is the, the, the mother, you know, the woman is looking after the children and this money is for the children. So it's not to go in the husband's, you know, um, thing. Um I mean, I'd always been a social worker before. So I well, that's it. If you're the sort of person where you see those red flags, and I actually wonder how much training is done within the banking sector. Not that many of us go into a bank anymore and that we have that face-to-face -face interaction like we used to, you know, but if everything's going into one person's name and if somebody is signing relentlessly to have a huge amount of debt against their name, you sort of wonder what red flags are being taught within the bank system as well. Meryl, thank you. A few texts, Bron, are coming in saying, you know, Rish and Bron, this has happened to me. It's not just a male thing. My ex-wife did the exact same thing to us when it came to child support assessment. And we said right at the very beginning of this that the stats that have come out from the Deloitte report is that it, it is a high number for men as well. It's one in 
in 30 for women, but one in 50 for men. Absolutely. Yep, yep, exactly. And if you do have an experience, uh, I'm interested in in hearing those stories. And as Meryl just mentioned there as well, if English is a second language, that can even make it trickier again. So we'll look at how those resources need to change and what work and what assistance is there in particular for migrant women. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt in Melbourne with you, Bromwano Shea in Barnawatha with you as well. And today, Brom, we're looking at financial control, financial abuse. It's more common than many of us think, but there are a few areas of our community where it gets even trickier again. And for those where English is a second or third language or they don't speak English at all, and for migrant women, this is something that, that's really problematic, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and especially if you think about um, the way that perhaps perceptions of who's in charge of money might have been decades ago, generations ago, um, certainly within some families, things might not have changed yeah. dramatically. So for migrant women and knowing where to get help, we wanted to speak to Deepji Aluka. Now, Deepji is incredible. She is a part of the Multicultural Association of Community Empowerment. This is a not-for-profit that she founded. And she is at the coalface, Bron, isn't she? She is the one mm. that helps women, that she walks into the banks, that she'll go and speak to financial counsellors with them. Deepji's literally on a plane as we speak. So we caught up with her yesterday, but we started off by asking her, what are some of the solutions where she's, or situations, I should say, where she's had to go in and actually help somebody. Firstly, Rochelle and Ron, thank you so much for having me on the show. And I'm really uh, very happy that this has been discussed, which is such a prevalent existing problem in our local community and society. I've been in the finance industry for over a decade now. And in the community space, uh, there have been a lot of examples and a lot of scenarios that I've been having, you know, first-hand experience with uh, where for example, there was this one scenario uh, exactly where the lady was actually been has been a victim for like over ten years, you know. And most of the times, she uh, the victims don't really step out is because they're not financially independent, uh, and that's where the issue happens. And this this woman, she was suffering in the pain and you no know, struggling. And when she was actually even confronted uh, by the community that you know, why are you get you know, facing this kind of problem. Why aren't you actually voicing it out? She was too scared because she had two young children to look after. And that's that's really the situation that most of the migrant women are because they have no families here. They have no support system. They, their first language is not English. And they have no idea what, anyways, divorce is a big taboo, let alone speak about the family violence that they are suffering for over the years. So this lady specifically, she could not, you know, I saw her swollen face. I was seeing her for the first time. And I, and she's been beaten and bruised, you know, for over 10 years consistently by this man. And the reason she could not step out of the house, though she's a working woman, she was working in a childcare because she had no control over her finances, you know. So it was important that, you know, we actually, with the help of the local police, got the intervention order against the husband who was not expecting this at all because she knew that she was a sufferer and she'll continue to keep suffering and he would just keep hitting her and beating her up as as per his whims and fancies. Now, this lady was kind of awakened when she realized what support she has. You know, we went to the bank. I went to the bank with her, you know, the local bank branch and mentioned to them what situation that she was in. And they were all more than happy to assist her. Now, this is something very simple that most of the victims don't realize. The first and foremost easy way to actually reach out to someone if you don't understand that you're in a financial abusive relationship is to reach out to your local branch or local bank. And they're more than happy to support you. You know, one of all the financial institutions, if I may just correct myself, let's say most of them are happy to assist the victims. So this was one scenario where she had the control of the joint. She had no control over the joint account. But when we actually visited the bank and they made sure that the husband had no control over the account and she was the one who was dispensing money while he was, uh, was on the intervention order. So that was one example. The second one actually was very recent. Uh, I was happy, uh, I happened to speak to a lady. She's from an Asian background. Uh, again, most of the scenarios are where the women take a break, where they want to nurture their young families and young children and look after their growing family. And they take a break from their work and they become financially dependent on their husbands. So this, this gentleman, he actually was, um, 
he actually fled the country. He went overseas and he made sure that she has no access to funds. And whatever groceries she wanted to buy for her family, that's herself and her kids, he would online purchase them and get it delivered to her. Just basic basics and he stopped paying rent because he wanted he was forcing her to come back to the country that he went back to you know that is another strategy that he used so that if she doesn't have independence what is she going to do there if she's not able to pay the rent if she's not able to pay the utilities she has no option but to come back to this country where i can use my powers and my community pressure to financially and you know emotionally abuse her more Mm. so that was another example Deep G, you mentioned, especially in that first case, that that had been happening, that financial abuse for a decade. So I'm interested in what was it that uh, prompted those women to eventually reach out to someone and get your help? So, you know, most of, the, most of these cases, the women, the victims, do not gather the courage to talk to someone about it. Now, luckily for this lady specifically, the bruises were so evident. And when she went to drop her child to the school, that's when the other parents noticed that something is wrong here. And I'm glad and grateful to those parents to have, you know, picked up that phone and called me and said, Dipti, can you possibly help this lady? She's in a bad state and she's not telling us what is happening to her. And that's when I stepped into the picture and I asked her to, you know, go to the local police station and I'll see her there in 15. And I did that and I was with her throughout. And she was shivering all day. We got her children picked up. So basically, she would have continued to get, you know, suffered and get beaten up because she had no idea what her alternatives were, what resources were available. And the thing too, Deep D, with financial control and and financial abuse is that I think people don't always realise that they do have some power and some control or that the way that they're being treated isn't right. So, you know, a partner putting their name onto huge amounts of debt or being a a guarantor for something that they didn't agree to be or to have no access to banking whatsoever or to have their name on all of the key bills. All of these things stack up to being what is labelled as financial abuse. But not everybody realises that... That's wrong. Mm. True. And that's where I would, you know, urge all the listeners of your program to, you know, educate or even discuss this. So whenever I come across any woman, even a young child for that matter, I always make sure that they understand that everyone has the right to to get financial. You know, they they have to have financial literacy. Everyone needs to understand that they have to step into the branch or the bank at least once in their lifetime and understand how the banking works, you know. And... uh, for example, you very rightly said about this. Uh, and there was one case I prominently remember. This lady just calls me and she is so stressed because the husband stopped paying the utility bill. The mortgage is on her name. He stopped making repayments. And he, again, went overseas. because. And he's telling her, he's threatening her, actually, that, you know, I have stopped all this because I want the bank to throw you out on the streets with the kids because that you are not able to make the repayments and I will not make any. So she was in that scenario where she wanted to keep the house, but she had no control or no uh, way, you know, solution that she could think of. She was so petrified and stressed and she was worried, where will I go with my children? Now, again, people don't know there are so many facilities yeah. available, mm. you know, that they can get and, shelter. And we should mention too that phone number 1-800-RESPECT. So that's one 800 737-732, which is a 24-hour hotline exactly for this reason. So people can ring people who are affected by sexual assault or domestic or family violence or abuse yeah. or financial control, as you're telling us, Deep D. That number again, 1-800-RESPECT, so 1-800-737-732. So you've seen and heard some pretty horrific cases um, particularly amongst the migrant community. What do you think could be done, Deepti, to you know, make sure that we don't see more women and families go through this? I think first and foremost, the most important piece is awareness, creating awareness and educating people from all backgrounds. Uh, on that note, when you mentioned about 1800 Respect for Migrant Community, there is uh, a special uh, group called In Touch, which is a multicultural family violence support uh, group and if you're okay I'll, i would like to share their number you know yes, please, yeah. where they have access to speak in different languages the number is zero three eight four one three six 
0348-84-136-800. I repeat, 0348-84-136-800. Now, with migrant community or people from multicultural background who do not have English as their first language, it's as it is hard because they're trying to make, you know, struggle, find that they do not have that support system. So I think if we watch out for our neighbors, we watch out for some, you know, something that's not right as per us. It's just that one support or one hand-holding where we say, okay, fine, you know what? There is help available. If all of us just take that initiative of assisting something that we are seeing is not right. Like in this scenario that I mentioned, who was suffering for 10 years, it was amazing work done by the uh, other moms who were not her friends, but, you know, they saw that her face is bruised or something is, you know, not uh, adding up. And they just, you know, try to help her out. I think if we, all of us, can take that initiative of just, you know, expressing that, that we can help, that would be one step. But creating awareness and educating people is a must. And I think we are doing that through your radio program. Well, and in just a moment as well, we'll speak with community legal centres that are setting up really specific programs too for women of non-English speaking backgrounds, but not just for them, but for their children as well. But Deepti, the work that you do, honestly, it's incredible. And it's always such a privilege to speak with you and our community is richer and greater for having you in it. So thanks so much for the time and for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That's Deepti Aluka, who we spoke to yesterday, and she's with the Multicultural Association of Community Empowerment, which she founded, MACE. Uh, Jenny Smith is the CEO at the Northern Community Legal Centre. Jenny, welcome to the Conversation Hour. Thank you. Hi, Rochelle. You work specifically with migrant women experiencing financial control. How do we make it easier for women to know where they can go and what help they can get? I think one of the key things is that peer education and we're currently running a peer education program called Take the First Step. Um, it's so important for um, women who know that community, who speak the language in that community, who know where are the spaces and the places where women will be to be able to yeah, right. provide that information. So going to them, because I always have concerns when there might be some great organisations or systems or phone numbers set up, but if you if you don't know where to go in the first place, then it's kind of pointless. But So you're talking about going to these community centres or schools or groups or wherever it may be. That, that's correct. And even... Even places that, um, you know, large organisations wouldn't consider having yeah. information in uh, supermarkets yeah. that, are very, shops. that mm-hmm. are very specific to particular cultural groups. So we know that there might be, you know, Asian groceries, we met, you know, etc. We know that libraries are an excellent place that generally um, uh, newly arrived communities will probably be doing some language courses, will possibly um, be able to access a library with children. So that's another place. And, uh, yeah, we've just been funded for a program called Take the First Step, and that's on our website, and that has a lot of information about legal rights and where to go. And um, we'll be putting posters with QR codes that to, to access that information in all the places that our, our peer educators um, identify and we'll also be, we've trained those peer educators in with family violence training um, to be able to also spread that information and knowledge into their community. Jenny, it feels, uh, Rochelle as well, as though this is where we're going to get the wins in this issue. It's in that grassroots approach. It's not necessarily in the helplines. It's in making sure everyday people within community really know what to look out for and know exactly where to send people. Jenny, is that that your sense too, working in that space? Yeah, that's correct. And I guess it's doing that community education. I mean, one of the things that we know from our research and from our um, project, an Indian Family Violence Project, was that that threat of deportation is what is keeping many women in unsafe relationships. And it's getting that information out there about rights um, because often it is the thing 
that um, is is so connected to all of those other coercive um, and controlling behaviours in relation to financial yeah, abuse. because otherwise, yeah, and having your visa taken from you and, as you said, that threat of deportation. The work that you do is incredible. As you said, your website, it's the Northern Community Legal Centre, but also look out for those signs and those and those posters, you know, whether it be for yourself or, or somebody close to you. Jenny, thanks so much for your time and for the work that you and your, your team at the Legal Centre do. Thank, thanks very much. Bron, so many texts here, and unfortunately there's no chance we could read all of them, but here's just a couple. This says, I was being financially abused for years, but I didn't actually realise it until mm. I left for other reasons. His alcohol dependency ran our entire family, and our financial control just became a part of it. Another saying, this is prevalent for lesbian couples too, and that's something that I know you and I spoke about, same-sex relationships. There was just so much to cover today that unfortunately that couldn't be a part of today, which doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. So we completely acknowledge that. Listen to this text. My mum got her first bank account when she was 68 years old and then moved out of the family home. And doesn't that oh. say it all about how control over mm. your money and your finances mm. is incredibly empowering and it should be an absolute oh right for every single person absolutely thank you to everyone who's sharing those stories with us this morning Darcia Abella is the program manager and the financial safety program our coordinator at West Justice Darcia listening to this it's all ages it's all genders it's all backgrounds we're talking one in 30 women one in 50 men yet for at least so yeah, at least of what we know about <laughs> yeah. yet nobody really knows where to go to get help why is that? Hi, uh, Rochelle and Bronwyn. Thanks for having me today. Um, as we've heard from so many of the callers and participants today, financial abuse is really one of those um, areas that's less understood. Um, like Dipti said, it's often that people recognise signs of physical abuse because of bruises and so forth. But talking about money and having those conversations can be really hard for people but um but i'd say it's really important to know that there is help out there if you do need to get help um i'll just talk uh, about our restoring financial safety program now so the program was born out of many years of lived experience consultations and research that showed clearly there was a need for a whole of system response and targeted initiatives to the issue of economic abuse um, so the restoring financial safety program really aims to improve the uh, financial security of women who have left violent relationships. And we do this through an integrated services partnership between West Justice and a local family violence service called Macaulay. So West Justice embeds a lawyer and a financial counsellor within Macaulay to provide holistic legal assistance and financial counselling to victim survivors of family violence. And while the financial counsellor might be helping someone to do things like clear away coerced debt or working towards repairing that person's credit rating, the lawyer might also be mm. providing ancillary legal supports with issues like fines, tenancy, victims of crime, compensation. And um, one of the most important aspects of this program is that it takes place in an environment where that person has already developed trust and where they feel safe. And while we provide the legal and financial counselling assistance, that woman is also simultaneously being supported by a family violence case manager and maybe accessing a raft of other necessary supports like employment, counselling or health services. Mm. Darcy, so, we've yeah. heard quite a few examples of people having to resort to legal action to set things right. And I'm aware, Ish, that, you know, that's that takes money. It takes yep. money to fight. Um, Darcy, how do you overcome that? How do you make sure that even if you don't have a cent to your name because of this financial abuse you've suffered, you, you still can go in and fight for what you deserve and, and have a right to? Yeah, so um, when it comes to economic abuse, um, most corporate businesses like banks and utility companies, telecommunication companies, they now have family violence policies and codes of practice um, that outline how they have to treat people who tell them that they've experienced family violence. That can include things like taking safety measures um, on people's accounts to prevent a, uh, financial abuse from happening in the first place. Or it might be um, 
treating family violence as a ground of financial hardship um, itself. Mm. And um, there's also important responsible lending laws in place which can work to protect people um, who are experiencing economic abuse and um, and where these laws have not been complied with, that might also be yeah. that might also give rise to um, seeking waivers or remediation, or it may be accessing free supports through a relevant industry ombudsman. Um, and just knowing dispute. where to go, I mean, we've heard today from the community, um, the Northern Community Legal Centre, we know that you're at West Justice, there's a text here that says, I have a banking background, employees are intensively trained in financial abuse red flags, we're always on the lookout for abusive behaviour, they regularly support and assist victims, please access your bank, they have specialists there that can support you confident, uh, confidential and uh, What's the word? Confidentially. Thank you. <laughs> it's been a long hour. <laughs> it has been. It's been intense. So th- those supports are there as well. And it's just knowing where to go. Darcia, thank you so much. We're going to give out some numbers now and some websites so people can go to as well. But West Justice being one of them. So it's really important work that you do. So thank you. That's Darcia Abella. She's the Program Manager of Financial Safety Program at West Justice. You can go on to their website. And it's for men and women. All of these services, please don't think, you know, even though there have been a lot of female examples today, Bron, there's a text here saying, I know this is mainly about women being abused, but do you have any services that offer for male victims? So all of these, I think, are for for all genders. Um, Because there's even another text here, and I won't give out the name, but it says... I think I'm potentially one of those one in 50 men. My ex-partner controlled the household finances. Apparently, I was too stupid to do it. Our 14 years together, I never had any clue or access to her business or to our bank account. My pay was spent entirely every fortnight. Now we're going through the process of financial separation and it's fraught and it's bewildering as well. And it feels as though for a lot of people, um, there's a trust and, and some people have used the word naivety. I'm not saying that is a naive thing to do, but when you're in a trusting relationship, you don't have a concern about maybe not having the detail on some of your financial um, and it creeps you know, in. Oh, and then you it's know. not until there's a crisis or a separation yep. or a problem that it becomes clear that this is not okay. Um, that number for In Touch, which was that service, Rochelle, that Deepti mentioned, which is specifically for people from migrant and refugee backgrounds, that's 0384136800. Um, and also the Centre for Women's Economic Safety. We spoke to Rebecca at the top of the show, CWES. .org.au. You can Google that. And OPAM, which particularly looks at elder abuse and supporting older Australians, is just opanopan.org.au. All great resources. And just look out, like when we spoke to the Northern Community Legal Centre today, I think the fact that they are reaching out to those men and women, you know, where they live and work, look out for those little bits of information. You know, you might need it. Take a little picture of it. You might want to pass it on to someone. I think that's incredible. So you can go to West justice as well and you can go to the uh, community legal centres and there are community legal centres wherever you live in regional or in metro Melbourne or in the outer suburbs there are there are quite a few of those resources around and I think from this conversation this morning I've realised that really we all play a part in this yeah. you know whether you're a one in 30 or one in 50 or not we all play a part because we all live in communities and have these connections and we can be looking out for the warning signs and making sure that we're connecting people with the support they need too.